Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we're talking about putting blindness into focus. One young woman shares her adventure with us. Also going to be talking about worry and anxiety and a little self-help or, well, sexual self-help. And also going to be talking about workplace toxicity. Now that we're all headed back into the offices, I am Maureen McGrath and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. I have a guest who's going to join me on the line to talk about her story, share her vision of blindness with us and with you. And so I'm delighted to invite Ramia Amutan on the line. Good evening, Ramia. How are you? Good evening, Maureen. I'm doing well. Thank you. It's lovely to have you here. Now, Ramia, you're a 28-year-old person living with inherited retinal disease, or IRD, what exactly is IRD? I have a genetic eye condition. Um, I have low vision due to a mutated gene, and it's a recessive gene. The particular condition that I have is called Leber's congenital amaurosis, which is a mouthful, so we can we can call it Leber's <laughs> or LCA. And um, it, it just means that my retina has been affected on uh, different terms, different levels, different things going on with it. Um, and the, the mutated gene is the reason for that. And my mom and dad were both carriers of this mutation, and it resulted in both my brothers being carriers of the gene and myself actually inheriting the condition, which is LCA. And you mentioned that you have low vision. What what exactly do you mean by low vision? So I self-identify as having low vision. Uh, some people might refer to it as partial sight or vision impairment or visual impairment. Um, and it's just a spectrum on the spectrum of uh, blindness, partial sight. And uh, for me, low vision is practically night blindness, color blindness, um, trouble seeing in the distance, trouble seeing details. But because I do have some usable vision, I use some of my vision to um, read and write, to identify where there's light in the room. Sometimes if there's stairs or other kind of obstacles in my way, um, people around, you know, just different things around me, I can still somewhat identify. So I refer to it as having low vision. I see. Now, is this a progressive illness? It can be. Uh, for me right now, my up until now, the condition has been stable. But it's not to say that I may not lose more vision along the way. A lot of others who I know uh, personally who have LCA have lost vision, more vision in their 30s or more vision in their 50s. And it really depends because some of us start off with more or less vision than I have right now. Um, and then it can get progressively worse as you get older. Mm-hmm. And and how were you diagnosed? What what were the symptoms that you started to have? And, and what age were you? You're fairly young right now, very young um, with this right. condition. But Yeah, and honestly, the, the person who first started to notice um, anything to do with my vision was my mom, um, which mm-hmm. seems very obvious, right? Because she was trying to help me focus on different things. But she said that as a baby, I would um, look towards the light always, look towards wherever the sun was or bright lights in the room were. And as other babies would follow fingers or follow toys or bright colors or different fun-looking things, I didn't. I would just always veer toward the light. And my mom said there was something strange about that for her. And though she could tell I had some visual stimulation, she said that there was noticeably differences between me and other babies. So um, she started the journey of trying to find out exactly what was going on with me. That was in Sri Lanka, where I was born. And then when we moved to Toronto, I was two years old. And since then, we've just been a constant um, and continuous uh, adventure of finding out more and more about my vision. So Sick Kids Hospital is the first and biggest place that 
um, gave us our information, uh, kept us in the loop, and continues to keep us in the loop, uh, loop on what uh, you know progress and developments there are with LCA, with my eye condition. Uh, and as they find out more, they tell us more. But you know, since Sick Kids, we've done um, so much research, being part of a lot of different collaborations and uh, just sessions with professionals to find out more about my eye condition. Mm-hmm. That is so interesting to me that your mother noticed that you were drawn to the light. Um, you know, when we're looking straight into the sun or into brightness, you know, it's usually something that would bother one's eyes. And, you know, I, I wonder if I would have noticed that in, in my babies mm-hmm. or if um, other moms would have not- noticed that. Um, and I also love that you called this an adventure. So many people refer to it as a journey, which sounds so much lovelier. You know, an adventure is a little bit more, you know, there's surprises along the way. You're not exactly, you know, you know, fully aware of what path you're going to take. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure it has been an adventure for you. Um, how did this affect your uh, schooling and your socialization? So I've always been in integrated education systems. I went to public school since I was a kid, and uh, there were chances, I would call them, along the way where I could have been sent to W. Ross McDonald School, which is the school for the blind in Brantford, Ontario, um, and other specialized programs, perhaps. But again, I'll bring my mom back into the conversation because she insisted that since I have some usable vision and because I was really her and I and the entire family were getting the support um, that we needed at the time that I was going to go to school um, she wanted me to stay in integrated school she taught me how to read and write in Tamil in Tamil which is my first language uh, before I even went to kindergarten and that was because as she tells me she was very fearful that I would go to school and that uh, people wouldn't take me Seriously, so she taught me how to read and write, and then the, that to kind of put the um, the equipment in her tool belt to be like, see, she can be taught, she can be educated, and you know, let her stay in school. I'm not sure if there was a time where she thought that uh, people would disagree and that that I shouldn't go to school. But coming from where we come from, um, people with disabilities are not always given the opportunity to go to school. So anyway, all this to say that I went to school in an, in a public uh, system and we were supported. Uh, there was individualized lesson plans to help me. Um, even though I was at school and in class with all the other students, there would be a special mm-hmm. um, hour or two of the week where an orientation and mobility instructor would come by and teach me how to navigate the school, learn um, how to cross the street or learn how to, you know, use a, a bus, or, um, walk into a grocery store or go to the library from my house. And there would also be another individual, which we call itinerant teachers, um, who come to show us how to use adaptive technology. Um, if you were a Braille user, you would learn how to use Braille with this person, or you would learn how to use um, the technology on your computer to help you zoom in or for me, I like using inverted colors or reverse contrast. So they taught me how to use my equipment in, um, in the, the accessible ways. We're talking about low vision as you, which is what you have. And uh, as it relates to IRD, September is um, IRD awareness month. And I really appreciate you sharing your adventure with us um, because I'm, I'm sure it has been an adventure. There are a number of medical conditions beyond IRD that can lead somebody to lose their vision. In addition to IRD, who people can lose varying degrees, it be a, a spot on the spectrum as to how much vision they would have lost. Um, aside from you know the grief, I would imagine, for people who have lost their vision, maybe in their 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s, Um, What are some of the other, what advice would you give to somebody who is losing their vision or or who has lost their vision? You know, Maureen, so much of how people respond to when they're losing vision um, really does fall back on 
what kind of supports they're being offered. And I have this conversation a lot of late because I think about it more, right? So the the doctor who tells you your driver's license is being revo- revoked or, mm-hmm. um, you know, the moment that you realize, oh, I can't see what this other person is seeing. And these are really, really hard moments. And sometimes we're in denial for such a long time. So I think the important the important part is the support that you get from your medical team, your doctors, your um, care providers, and then your family, you know, if you have a partner, your kids, your parents, whatever the case may be. Uh, And then, of course, anywhere else where you can get specialized support. The CNIB, the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, or VLRC, um, and the, I'm thinking of places in Toronto like Balance for Blind Adults, uh, Accessible Media Inc., places where you can go to feel like you can find a community of people. And even that, Mm -hmm. I will say that sometimes you're not ready for that. You're not ready for the support. You're not ready to start talking about your blindness as if you are experiencing it or that it is getting uh, worse for you or real for you. Nonetheless, those first steps to acquiring the support or for the people around you to help you embrace uh, all these different resources and communities is super important. And, um, you know, firsthand a couple months ago, I met a guy who is just starting to lose his vision and he lost from having 20-20 to his entire uh, site in two weeks. And that was very devastating for him and his family. Like, you know, we saw it firsthand. But his parents were so adamant that he meet me and he meet other people who have uh, low vision or who are blind and that he speak to someone about learning how to continue to use his phone, continue to use a keyboard, all these different ways to just keep in Mm. touch, right? So that you don't isolate yourself. Absolutely. Now, what are some of the stigmas and stereotypes associated with IRD or vision loss, essentially? I would say um, that it's all or nothing. You're either 20-20 or you're completely blind uh, and you see nothing at all, uh, which is absolutely not the case. As for myself Mm -hmm. and with lots of other people who have experienced vision loss or who have partial sight, um, we know that blindness is a spectrum. And people who even identify as being blind may have some sight, some light perception, some uh, way of seeing something around them. And so that's probably one of the biggest, you know, the the true or false questions (laughs) that I would Mm -hmm. uh, put out there. Um, And the other stigma is just that, you know, if you lose your vision, say goodbye to life. Uh, That is absolutely not the case either. There are Tons of us living very fulfilling lives and uh, a ton of support being given to make sure that there's quality of life for people with disabilities. Uh, And of course, we take some accountability for that and we keep reaching um, to make the world more inclusive and more accessible. Um, But, you know, especially around Canada, there are lots of services and people uh, who want to make sure that people with disabilities live just like everybody else. Absolutely. And, you know, when we're talking to somebody who has vision, you know, we don't think about them seeing us, but when we are speaking to somebody who has lost their vision or has, is blind, you know, I can see where people might, you know, create a stigma around that. Um, When it's really, you know, we're about relationships and about connecting and it's not just about somebody being able to see me. Um, in, you know, to have a healthy and, and, and good relationship. Um, this is an inherited condition that you have inherited retinal disease. Um, and, and you found out obviously that your parents were carriers and your brothers or your brother was a carrier. Um, what is your advice to a family who, uh, has this in their family in terms of, uh, a, a family connection to IRD, what what would your thoughts be on on being uh, tested, having a genetic test, essentially, and to understand their risks? And why is that important? Well, my personal experience, as you've heard, is a lot on, um, there's been a lot of great information 
that's been not just shared, but actually discovered in my lifetime, right? So in the last mm-hmm. 15 years alone, uh, there has been new information that is being discovered and shared and um, utilized to help people. So, you know, the most recent and most top of mind thing is Luxterna, um, which is a gene therapy that has just been approved by Health Canada here. And that is huge. huge news there's people who literally dedicated their entire lives to helping this cause who are seeing progress and it's it's actually being put on paper so genetic testing might feel like a tiny um part of that bigger picture but it's a huge step um my entire family got genetically tested uh to in order to a figure out what my diagnosis was, right? So which is how I I personally um find significance in this. And then B for it to go and then help the ride of gene therapy um and other clinical tests and then Luxterna and other things in the works that are clear answers and scientific progress for um genetic conditions like LCA and other IRD um conditions to have some some ways to understand that these things are being looked at that science and people are still wanting to figure out if and when uh these can be stopped potentially like these these mutations uh-huh. and conditions Absolutely. You make such a great point. Inherited retinal disease or a group of rare blinding conditions caused by one of more than 270 different genes. Where can people get more information, Ramia? Well, Fighting Blindness Canada is a great place to start. So if you go to their website or just Google Fighting Blindness Canada, um that's a really wonderful place to get started and to find out more about IRD to support and just find out more about um the science that is progressing in this field. Ramia, you're wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and educating all of us about this. I think it's going to help a lot of people. It was really nice talking to you. Thank you, Maureen. There is a vaccination program coming our way. Health Canada authorized the first bivalent COVID-19 booster for adults 18 years and older. There's an adapted version of the Moderna Spikevax COVID-19 and the vaccine is known as the bivalent vaccine. It targets the original SARS-CoV-2 virus from 2019, remember back then, and the Omicron BA1, the the Omicron variant. And it's authorized for use as a booster dose in individuals 18 years of age or older. Or if you've had uh, if you're up to date, which means you've had either 3 or 4 vaccines and you can actually get this bivalent which is a more targeted vaccine in the fall if it's available to you because even though it has been authorized in Canada sometimes it's difficult for Canadians depending on access to get these uh vaccines but after a thorough and independent scientific review of the evidence Health Canada obviously determined that the bivalent Moderna Spikevax booster is safe and effective i mean millions and millions of these vaccines have been given around the world The clinical trials demonstrated that a booster dose of the bivalent Moderna Spikevax vaccine triggers a strong immune response against both Omicron and the original SARS-CoV-2 virus strain. It also was found to generate a good immune response against the Omicron BA4 and BA5 subvariants. Remember those? And it's also expected to extend the durability of protection. So as i say every week covid is still with us it has not gone away people are still dying as a result and there are still hospitalizations there they are less but they are still there and so it makes it difficult or challenging or risky for people who have who are immunocompromised for example or older individuals as well so this 
is a very safe vaccine. It has the same mild adverse reactions that the previous vaccines have had that resolve typically very quickly within a day or two. Vaccination is still one of the most effective ways to protect people, communities, families, and yourself against COVID-19. I still don't want to get (laughs) COVID-19. I'm still being very careful. And and I have some other reasons that I don't want to get COVID-19, aside from the fact that I don't want to get long COVID. I don't want to have neurological issues. I don't want to have cardiovascular issues. But sometimes the work that I do, I have to be, I I cannot test positive. Okay. (laughs) So, or then I'll lose out on the opportunity. Um, healthcare is like that, if you know what I'm saying. And, and a lot of other industries should be like that as well, because we're getting a lot of people coming back into the office. A lot of companies are saying, you're coming back in. I, I know that one company who's saying three days a month, and I know somebody who's very upset about that. Other companies are saying three days a week, you must return to the office. They're wanting to get people back into the office, and that is going to increase the risk. Because I really don't think that workplaces understand COVID and the impact on it, on their workers as well. And I think there should be some health, health and wellness surveys that are done in the morning I, before they come into work. I, I really think it should be discouraged for people if they are sick, they should not come into work. If they have any symptoms of COVID-19, even if they think it's a cold, they should work from home. We've obviously demonstrated that we can do that. We can work from home very well. There are some organizations, some industries where you can't work from home. And I understand that. And in that case, it's masking up. It's, it is that physical distance distancing. It's also that cleaning of the air, HEPA filters, opening the windows, fans, that kind of thing. Um, You know, good ventilation systems help to prevent transmission of COVID-19 because you don't want to get it once, twice, three times, four times. I know people who've had it a number of times repeatedly. And really who wants to get sick? Vaccines are very effective at preventing severe illness, hospitalization, and death from COVID-19. I've been saying this for two years now or more. Um, And so keeping up to date on your vaccinations is very important and getting those booster doses as recommended. And that helps to protect people against serious illness and other complications because there are complications with COVID-19. So there certainly are um, sequela, loss of taste and smell. Um, fatigue, brain fog, lots of different um, concerns. You don't want to be one of those people who is suffering long COVID. First of all, a lot of people aren't even going to believe you. They're going to think it's all in your head. And and it's not, but there's a lot of people who will think that because they think, ah, I had COVID-19. It was just a, like a cold. It was nothing. It was no big deal. I'll get it again. They don't care. But if they, anybody would care if they realize the risk to their long-term health. But there are some uh, conditions that Health Canada, if you're concerned about this, that Health Canada has placed some terms and conditions on the authorization requiring Moderna to continue providing information. They must continue to provide information to Health Canada on the safety and efficacy of the bivalent vaccine. And that way the department, the Health Canada department will have more data from ongoing studies and real world data, which is very important to ensure that the benefits of the vaccine continue to outweigh any risks as well as to detect any potential new safety signals. So they are very careful watching this. They're closely monitoring the safety of this particular vaccine in Canada and internationally, and obviously would take any, would take action if they did find that any safety concerns were identified. So this is basically how science works. And I mean, it's very important that we trust the science. It's very important that you speak to your own doctor. It's very important that you, if you are versed in research, um, not Facebook research, not Instagram or Twitter, um, although there might be some studies posted on on Twitter, but it's important to look at the peer-reviewed journals and and clinical trials that... um, you know, the gold standard of the clinical trial um, and speak to your doctor about that and any concerns that you might have. But we cannot be complacent about COVID-19. Our lives are getting back because a lot of people have had infections and they've had vaccines. And so all of that contributes to uh, community immunity. And that has certainly helped. And the fact that the subvariants aren't as, um, you know, as 
challenging as some of the previous um, strains. And so people aren't getting as sick with some of them. So anyway, very important. Stay up to date. Talk to your doctor. Keep in mind, COVID-19 is still here. I still recommend that you wear a mask and, um, you know, that you still wear your mask so that you can stay safe and keep others safe as well. You know, I'm, I go into grocery stores and on planes and, um, you know, it's disheartening to see people not wearing masks, but one way masking works. And I recommend that you do that. Lots of workplaces are heading back. I happen to know Fidelity wants their employees back and Google wants their employees back and Amazon, everyone's going back into the office. And what does that mean after a two year break of, you know, people working from home and people working fairly productively from home. And, you know, those of you who have experienced workplace bullying or other toxic behaviors in the workplace may not be too excited to go back into the office and face those bullies, face that ostracized, being ostracized (laughs) in the office. It can impact your mental health. It can actually lead to burnout, which is why I've invited Dr. Tomi Mitchell to join me again. Dr. Tomi Mitchell obviously is a medical doctor. She um, specializes in wellness and performance. She empowers lawyers, doctors, and other professionals to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity in the workplace. And we're going to talk about toxic workplaces. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. Nice to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. So toxic workplaces, uh, this is definitely something that I have experienced (laughs) and it was awful and it's horrible on one's mental health and even physical health. And you're also a little bit gobsmacked by it because, you know, if you're somebody like me, I'm a perfect target for workplace bullies, by the way. But, you know, somebody like me, I like to do a good job. I'm productive. I'm energetic. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a do-gooder, but, (laughs) you know, I go in with no malice of forethought. I want to get the job done, keep the team moving. And, um, and I can be hit broadside by a workplace bully or by some other workplace behavior that can really uh, derail everything. How can somebody recognize a toxic workplace? What is a toxic workplace, by the way? Well, a toxic workplace is a workplace where you feel your psychological safety is not there. You feel like there's constant edge, um, conflict with other people. You go in there feeling worse as the day progresses. So there's many ways to describe a toxic workplace. You know, you, you created a perfect situation. Many people have been away from work while well, working from home and now going into the work environment. Um, it's really important to really have eyes open and do a lot of listening to, and watching people's behaviors because you might not realize you're in a toxic workplace until it's a few months in. No different than a toxic relationship. You might not see it initially, but if you stop and mm-hmm. watch for key signs, you might notice it sooner than later so you can actually address the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, narcissists are often the leaders. There's this narcissistic leadership in toxic workplaces. Would you agree with that? That leaders that are only self-interested, they lack empathy, and they're impossible to work with. Yes, they are the, the, I would say the hardest to deal with. And that's a very hard choices will have to be made for this side of someone who's on the receiving end. Definitely challenging to deal with. Because it's not uh, the best place to stay, that kind of environment. Um, where it's it's toxic, you know, and, and oftentimes, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know something's wrong, but you're not exactly sure what it is. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense because especially if you're not used to this and you're not going in aware that this could very well be your reality, you might not notice that. I've seen so many clients who didn't realize that work was really toxic until they were breaking down, until it just hit that, they hit the wall. And when they look back, they realize, wow, I've been dealing with this for years, but they didn't have a way to explain it or kind of conceptualize it in their mind. So um, it's really important to be mindful. And so what are some of the signs of, uh, like you go in and you meet the colleagues or you're back in the office with the colleagues, and um, what are some of the things that happen that you might think, this is a toxic environment? 
Definitely. Obviously, bullying is one. This can be verbal, physical. It doesn't, you know, it could be psychological. Favoritism. That's honestly when it's like, let's say the boss's kid and the boss's kid does jack all, all day at work. That can be very frustrating, especially if they're your, your, they're your superior. Um, then the narcissistic leadership, which you mentioned, that's pathological. I almost call them a lost hope, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. If you feel like when you, you you speak up, no one's listening to you, your suggestions are kind of pushed under the rug, like rolling eyes, whatever. Like you feel like you, your voice doesn't matter. You're not appreciated. That can be another. And then also the gossip. This is this is the one that bugs me when people are just constantly talking about others. And it's like, mm-hmm. why? The person's not there to defend themselves. Why are you bothering somebody? Why? Because if that person is talking about others, Chances are they're going to talk about you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about being overworked? I have a friend who is being so overworked, working seven days a week, you know, um, crying before she goes to bed at night because she's so exhausted, uh, getting up in the morning, working like 17 hour days every day, has had to cancel plans in the summertime to go away because the boss has overworked her. What? Uh, is is that another sign of a toxic workplace? One hundred percent, and this is this is also common too, where people are trying to do more with less people, right? Or maybe they generally don't have the employees because it's a shortage. But whatever the reason, it is not sustainable to do that month after month after month after month. And then with the pandemic, many people have been in that situation where they're like, okay, they're glad they have a job, but this is a year and a half of two years of this, you know, nonstop. Go, go, go. And it's taken a toll on them mentally and physically. Absolutely. And I can see the toll. Yeah, I can see the toll this is taking on this person. And it's affecting their relationship. It's affecting their relationship with friends. And it is just brutal. So what are your summary? Quick suggestions before we go to break. um, How to deal with a toxic workplace. And dare I say, if you have a narcissistic leader, the best thing to do is to run. (laughs) Get out of there. You can get another job. Yeah. Yes. And before you run, document, 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 get as much as you can in emails. Don't do the whole verbal, like gentleman's agreement. Oh, I promise I'll give you this. No, no, no. You get that written down. Okay. Um, Yeah. So document, have, find allies in the workplace, someone who can support a similar experience. Again, document it, whether it's conversation, Uh text messages, emails, document, 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 because in this world, unless it is documented and it's like, almost like video almost people don't believe like you there's a really high burden of proof especially if that person has is a position of high power and they're quote unquote needed in unemployment or they're your boss um have an outlet you know have someone neutral who you can talk to it could be a sounding board Um, definitely get counselors involved and therapists because when you Let's say you have to go on leave because this does happen. People go on short-term disability. Having that documentation and having someone on your side who can um, witness the journey of your mental health as it deteriorates over time is really, really important, especially as clinical psychologists or a psychiatrist. So that's yeah, a few of just, my top um, ideas. Great advice, especially around that documentation. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, anyway, I'd like you to stay on the line because you are a bastion of knowledge and wisdom, and and you're going to share a little bit more knowledge about inner and outer beauty. My guest is Dr. Tomi Mitchell. She's a medical doctor who specializes in wellness and performance. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. My Mitchell. Pleasure. We don't have a whole lot of time for this segment, but um, you know they say beauty is only skin deep. These days, beauty is filters and fillers and Botox. And I can't tell you how many people, I'll say, mostly women, I haven't seen them in a while. I see them. I think they don't even look like themselves. <laughs> I, yes, I, they have changed their entire look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. in addition to like, you know, on women in the supermarket, I think, why would somebody do that? What what are people thinking, and how much is uh, inner beauty inextricably linked to outer beauty? And what what are your thoughts on on that? Great question. Well, true beauty radiates from the inside out, 
Okay, there are a lot of people who, quote unquote, are beautiful on the outside, but very superficial, superficial, selfish, self-centered, narcissistic, right? Inner beauty is actually eternal. And, and it doesn't matter how much you mature. Like you could be 90 years old or, you know, or older. That gentleness, that steadfastness, that humility, that character, that ability to say the truth without sugarcoating, but with love, that is what really matters. And also, when you pair that off with a smile, honestly, you actually look better. Like, it's interesting. Why are so many women changing their, oh, sorry. Why are so many women changing their looks? I mean, I can see enhancing (laughs) a bit. Yeah. You know, the droopy this or the droopy that. Yeah. (laughs) I... But I, so you'll, I'll, uh, okay, well, it's interesting enough. I'm actually in the world of um, aesthetics. I believe mm-hmm. in enhancing one's natural beauty. As in you look at yourself when you were, let's say, five, ten years younger and see what was there. Where has gravity taken effect? And then gently lift it. So you still look like yourself. You just look like, wow, you went on a great vacation. You know, like, oh, like people don't know quite what it is but you look like yourself, mm-hmm. but you look better. And that little pep helps give you an extra step as you continue to build that inner confidence. But you can't compensate outer, like you can't overcompensate the lack of inner beauty with the outer. And that's where you get, I call it fugly. It's where it's like used too much. It's not cute. Oh, totally. And the other area that people seem to focus on is all of a sudden they get these eyebrows that are up on their hairline. <laughs> That's something else. That just like, nobody, nobody has that. No, nobody is born that way. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but I'm not, I'm trying not to judge people, <laughs> but maybe yeah. I am. But I, I just think, is there, is that linked to how they feel about themselves? I mean, to alter the looks Really entirely. I mean, honestly, there are some women I think, is that them? I mean, yeah, you know, when especially I... on social media too, because oh we can goodness. apply filters there and look oh amazing. Yes. Oh, yes. You know, when I see these extreme distortions, there's conditions like body dysmorphia or not even that, just like poor self-esteem. And that mm-hmm. that person needs help, right? They need someone who's like, okay, Let's really see what's happening and how can, like, how can we grow? Like, how can we learn to love yourself? What is it that you're afraid of? Is it afraid that you're not attractive so you're going to lose a partner? Or what is the deeper reason? Because honestly, that outer stuff is the symptom of something else. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's superficial. Truly it is. So, yeah, we are judged by that outer stuff. Let's be honest. Oh, ageism, lookism, right? Um, that's Absolutely. the reality. Uh, so we have to have a balance in this world. To say that no one's going to judge me, you can roll out of bed in your pajamas and show up to work, and no one's going to judge you, judge you, unless you're on Zoom and you're just showing your top half, people are going to judge you. So mm-hmm. now that we're going back into the workplace, we do need to put the effort in, right? Like, you know. We do. Getting your hair. That's you know, you just, you just need to. <laughs> It, it, it is, a, but it's like a relationship too, right? You know, you, you get the person of your dreams and then you do everything you can to catch them. You know, you're all well done and, you know, whatever, whatever. But then when you get them, you kind of let go because you're like, I got them. Eh, right. That works for some, but it doesn't work for many relationships. The same thing in our work relationships. We do need to do well, like exercise. That makes you feel good, makes you your blood to your face improve, so you have more of a natural glow. It's just the basics. If you apply them, it just overwhelmingly enhances your life, if that makes sense. Uh, I, totally. It completely and totally makes sense. And, you know, it's just about, I mean, we just have to go easier on ourselves and other people. I mean, I yeah. was never a big makeup wearer, but I stopped wearing it all together in the pandemic. But now that I have to go out in the world, I might have to <laughs> spring for some makeup. But Dr. Tommy Mitchell, thank you so much. Wonderful to have you on the program. We'll talk to you again next week. My pleasure. Take care, Maureen. you're listening to this part. This could be a very important part. In my clinical practice, which is basically mostly virtual these days, um, I cannot prescribe medications, but I can prescribe sexual wellness and I prescribe self-pleasure 
all the time. I don't call it masturbation because people then have a tendency to think of that as goal oriented. And that goal would be strictly to have an orgasm, which is good, which is great. But sexual pleasure is also very good for us. Sexual wellness is good for us. And that doesn't necessarily have to include an orgasm. What I want to say is that sexual pleasure comes with lots of different health benefits, regardless of whether you have an orgasm. So let's talk about some of those benefits. But before we do, I just want to say, I do have a uh, little gift to give out tonight. If you want to have your name entered into the pot for the Womanizer. It's been a while since I've given away a Womanizer, which is a clitoral stimulation device, um, because sometimes you just got to get her done. And um, self-pleasure, <laughs> just, you know, you might not have enough time. So the Womanizer comes in handy. It's um, $200 value, and it is a clitoral stimulation device, and it can be very beneficial whether you are solo or with a partner or two. But let's get down to some of the sexual wellness benefits. So, but anyway, if you want to get back to that sexual wellness and why it is important, why pleasure is important. In part, self-stimulation or masturbation can strengthen your pelvic floor. And so it's like a little mini workout for your pelvic floor. And so that can help with continence. It can prevent incontinence. It can also make your orgasms stronger. So you want to make them, as I said, a little easier, a little more frequent. It's the womanizer. So give us a call. The number to call is one 9898 And you can enter into the contest and I will announce the winner next week. Anyway, so aside from strengthening your pelvic floor, which is a very important physical health uh, aspect of your life, very important for uh, postpartum, um, perimenopause, postmenopause. So it's very important to keep that pelvic floor strong and you might as well put a smile on your face while you're doing it. Also, self-pleasure can be a mood elevator. And the reason is because the benefits that come from sexual pleasure happens because there is a release of oxytocin and dopamine. These natural chemicals wash your prefrontal cortex and your brainstem, leaving you with an overall sense of wellness and a smile on your face. It boosts your mood. And so to, a way to boost your mood even faster is with that womanizer, which I'm giving out tonight, one 9898 That's one 9898 um, another reason for sexual wellness, self-stimulation, masturbation, pleasure, um, if you are fortunate enough to experience an orgasm, an orgasm will help you to sleep better. And so for many of my patients, having an orgasm is something they do at the end of the day because that helps them sleep better. That's why a lot of people have sex at the end of the day. Of course, I don't know anybody that has sex at the end of the day because <laughs> all I see is patients who are not having sex. So if you are one of those lucky few who's having sex at the end of the day and having an orgasm, experiencing an orgasm, then you're probably sleeping well. Sexual pleasure de-escalates your nervous system and that leaves you in a state of peace and calm. And also, um, there is that release of oxytocin, which I mentioned, which is also known as the cuddle hormone. And prolactin is released as well. And prolactin is a hormone that can make you sleepy. And it inhibits cortisol, which is the stress hormone. And it's like a neurotransmitter nightcap for a better sleep for you. So, you know, it, ensuring if you have difficulty in your relationship, you're not having sexual relations, you're not intimate things have fallen off the bed since you got married or after the kids were born, you know, it's a good idea to seek help, to understand, to learn about sexual desire, to learn about the female sexual response cycle, to learn about responsive desire, not where desire comes first. It doesn't necessarily. So there's lots to learn. And it's also very, very important to keep that connection and keep that intimacy in the relationship, regardless of how long the relationship um, has been because oftentimes as people are 
together 10, 15, 20 years, things have a tendency to slow down. People become very busy. Um, that can also impact your sexual relationship with your partner. So this is a very, very important aspect of your overall general health, sexual wellness. I don't want to forget to say that self-touch can actually help promote the health of your skin. You know, at night, your bedtime routine is probably to, you know, wash your face, exfoliate, moisturize. Well, don't forget about self-pleasure as well. There's a hormonal release that happens with sexual pleasure that decreases stress, improves your sleep, and promotes relaxation. And you can also get glowing skin because sexual pleasure has been proven to elevate your estrogen levels, which can help maintain the youthfulness of your skin. So if there's no other reason, it's to prevent wrinkles. For me, that's a darn good reason. Enjoy that little extra pleasure with your partner um, at the end of the day. And if you're tired, that's when you bring the womanizer in as well. The womanizer used to mean pain. It now we've reclaimed the word. It means pleasure now. And if you would like to get entered into the contest, call Julie, one 399 9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. I'll collect up all the names and numbers and we'll pick somebody out um, for next week. You know, self-stimulation also helps you to stay in the moment. You know, my it's, it's a mindfulness. It's a very pleasurable mindfulness. It's a simple practice and it brings you to the here and now, which is, you know, take everything else that's going on in your life and have great sex with yourself. And there is one of the most wonderful benefits is that you are in the present moment with yourself. And when you take care of yourself with a self-pleasure practice, it's going to help you feel more present instead of being in the shame or depression of the past or in the anxiety of the future. Because that's what it's all about when you're thinking about, oh, what I did or whatever regrets that you have, you're living in the past. Or if you're thinking about the future and what you're going to do about this or something at work, or um, you're living in anxiety of the future. So self pleasure practice keeps you in the moment. And that's very, very helpful to live in the moment. And, you know, masturbation has been associated with shame, but that is changing. And I hope that is changing to be, there's more information about sexual wellness, although we still have a paucity of it. We still need more apps, more information, more femtech companies discussing it, talking about it. Um, you know, because According to studies, 76% of women and 92% of men masturbate. So it's not a secret anymore. And it's important to remember that talking about masturbation, you're talking about pleasure. And we never talk about that, especially when we're giving sexual health education. I do. I, I talk about it. But um, that's missing amongst a lot of sexual health education is the pleasure aspect for women in particular. But I am very much an advocate of any time that we're defining or looking at sexual health that we talk about pleasure. And there's no shame in bringing products into your um, life, into your intimate life with you. And it's also very important that um, because many women will experience vaginal dryness, so it's important to use a personal moisturizer or to speak to your doctor if you need localized estrogen therapy or um, there's lots of different products on the market, new products coming on all the time to help with um, vaginal dryness and painful sex. So it's an important conversation for you to have with your doctor. You know, doctors are okay if you talk about it. Sometimes they are shy to talk about it themselves because they're not sure that you'll be okay. And, and sometimes there is that miscommunication between patients and healthcare providers, but patients want to talk about it. Doctors want to talk about it. Doctors understand that it's an aspect of health. There's a very critically important aspect of health. So I want to help you turn pleasure into a practice for you. And so the more pleasure you experience, the better you will feel, better mood, better sleep. If you sleep better, you're going to have a better mood the next day. You know, you have better health and well-being. You have more of a connection 
with your partner. They're, the touch is very important. The release of oxytocin, prolactin, all of that is extremely important. And there are just so many reasons to masturbate more, more than you have been. It It is very important. Self-care, it is in fact part of self-care and sexual well-being and overall general health as well. There are people who can have issues with the sexual response cycle, which basically involves desire and arousal, um, lubrication, plateau, orgasm, but you can have issues with that. And so that's why it's also important if you have any issues in that area, if you cannot experience orgasm, for example, um, you might also have arousal issues. You might have dryness issues. There can be lots of sexual health issues. So it's a very important aspect of overall health. And it's something that you, regardless of age, I, I mean, I've, I had an 80-year-old patient ask me if she was too old for the womanizer. Of course, my answer was no. And um, she said to me later it was the best money she'd ever spent. Um, you know, it's uh, I have patients in my practice who are widowed and, um, you know, miss the intimacy of their partner but don't want to have somebody else in their lives. And so they will... Um, get a, a womanizer and find, you know, cause that part was missing in their lives. So very important, again, self-stimulation, masturbation, afternoon delight, call it what you want, but you deserve it and it's okay. And there should be no shame in self-stimulation or masturbation. Most people do it. And, um, it's something that, um, you know, can relieve your stress. You might have stress at work, stress with the kids, stress with the sandwich generation, stress with finances, whatever, but it's just something you can be in the moment and experience pleasure. And I prescribe it whether I'm in my clinical practice or on the airwave. I'm going to quickly um, let you know, review some of the things that can happen when you worry Physically, um, you can become physically ill. Chronic worry and emotional stress can trigger a whole host of health problems. For example, difficulty swallowing, dizziness, dry mouth, fast heartbeat, fatigue, headaches, inability to concentrate, irritability, muscle aches, muscle tension, nausea, nervous energy, rapid breathing, shortness of breath, sweating, trembling, and twitching. I said that I'm not a a worrier because there was a time in my life when something happened, I worried about A and I didn't worry about B, but B happened. And then I thought, oh my gosh, I have no control here. I am never worrying again. And that pretty much um, stopped my worrying because I realized I had no control. Some of the other things that can occur to your body, there are physical consequences as well. And so it can suppress your immune system. Maybe that's why I am a COVID virgin. You can have digestive disorders, muscle tension, short-term memory loss, and also coronary artery disease, and even heart attack. So all of these things can impact your quality of life and your health. They can lead to depression if they go untreated, if, ang- if worrying goes on to high anxiety, and then that leads to depression, you can even have suicidal thoughts. So these effects are a response to stress, and stress is simply the trigger. We all have it. it. just depends on how you handle the stress in your life. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.